Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have Sarah Scholes. She is the author of um, Making Contact. It's the autobiography of Jill Tater. Tater. Um, I believe she's the character that uh, played her on the movie Contact. I can't remember her name who played her. Oh, uh, Jody Foster. Jody Foster, yeah. And I know the other guy was um, Connie. I don't know another that Irish dude who's was in uh, that Mike movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> Matthew McConaughey in a yeah. very very different role. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still bad with names. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on. I love talking about. Um, extraterrestrials and ufos and any type of unexplained phenomena on my show um what got you interested in this topic yeah actually it was uh the movie in the book contact um which uh the the movie came out when i was about 12 and i uh watched it with my parents and just kind of became obsessed with the idea that uh, it was somebody's job to uh, be a scientist who looked for aliens. Um, And uh, for people who haven't seen the movie, it's about a a radio astronomer who dedicates her career to searching for radio broadcasts from aliens. And uh, it's it's fiction, so she finds one. and uh, yeah, I was just, I was very obsessed with this, this character, this idea, and the, the thought that we could scientifically research the question, uh, are we alone? And that just kind of set me down the path of being interested in that and interested in uh, radio astronomy, you know, the, the science of searching for invisible signals from the universe. So that's how it all started. That's pretty cool. I would say it's partly fiction because there is the wow signal. That's true. That is true. And we uh, don't know what that was. So. And, uh, and I think there's been a, some others since then also. I don't know the details of them, but I remember reading about them re- not too long ago that they have found a couple of others. Yeah, there have there have been a few kind of bursts of signals that haven't repeated that, that uh, people haven't been able to uh, pin down. And, you know, if something doesn't ever come back it's hard to really ever know what it was so right yeah yeah and i also remember when um seti came out with those um the screensaver where you could process some of their data on your computer and sends it back yeah yeah uh seti at home um i had that uh screensaver for a long time yeah they took took data with the i think mostly the arecibo radio telescope um which just kind of fell down the other day. And uh, yeah, your, your computer could process it and uh, see what it could find. It's one of the longest running kind of citizen science projects out there. That's yeah, really interesting. I remember having it. I saw that too the other day that that telescope fell down. I think I, I know the telescope, the giant dish, really. I think it was huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually worked there one summer as an intern when I was in college. Oh, that's cool. Cool. What was it like? Uh, it was very fun. I uh, 
you know, I would go running around the dish because it was, uh, it's very large. Um, and I was, I wasn't working on SETI. I was working on, uh, they also do radar studies of asteroids. So they'll shoot a beam of radar at an asteroid and then the signal will come back to the dish. So I was making little 3D, 3D computer models of what these asteroids look like. So it was a good project. So um, how accurate is that? type of technology really like, like is it i mean working there is it do you think a legitimate valid way to find extraterrestrials yeah i mean the so telescopes like that and others like the the green bank telescope which is in west virginia are you know very large like you said and very sensitive and they could detect civilizations that are emitting radio waves uh, kind of at the level that Earth has from pretty far away. Um, but, and, and so um, they, they have that ability, but the question then is, you know, would the extraterrestrials actually be broadcasting radio waves? And we have no idea, you know, if they're out there or if they like radio waves or not. And so it's just kind of our best guess for the moment about what they, might be up to, but um, yeah, they, they historically have looked for signals that are kind of like our radio stations, just very narrow band, just coming over a small range of, of frequencies and that kind of look intelligent. Um, and so, yeah, we have to make a lot of assumptions about what they might or might not be up to, but if we're right about those, then it's a good way to be searching. How, how good are they at detecting something that came from something you know, from another star system versus our own radio waves bouncing off the ionosphere? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, astronomers call our, like the signals we detect from our own technology, they call it RFI, radio frequency interference. And it's one of the biggest issues facing uh, radio dishes like Arecibo or the Green Bank Telescope, especially in the modern area era where every, you know, every, cell phone, every airplane, every uh, satellite is is using radio waves. And so they have to try to screen those out. And it's, it's a big problem. Um, I mean, things in space uh, far away move differently in the sky than stuff on Earth that is staying on Earth. So they do have pretty good ways of separating it out, but it, it could kind of drown out signals from space. If you're standing right there with your cell phone and the aliens happen to be broadcasting at the same time, it would be hard to see them because your phone would be so loud. Uh, did they use any, like, um, to, to, to avoid that, could they use, like, uh, satellite technology instead? Uh, to, to do the radio detection, you mean? Yeah, yeah, put it like a satellite outside of the range of Earth's radio waves. Yeah, yeah, that's um the US hasn't had a, a a detector like that but Russia actually did. They had a telescope called Radio Astron that was in orbit and did do that which was good and a lot of radio astronomers actually want to put a telescope on the far side of the moon. So away from all the signals and then having also the moon, you know, blocking anything. And, um, you know, that's expensive, but it would get around, it would get around the problem. Yeah. Um, 
do you think using radio waves is going to be the best or easiest way to find extraterrestrials? Or do you think there are other alternative methods that we should be also using? I mean, I think it's it's a good start. The reason that astronomers chose this uh, to be the first way that they searched was that it was our, uh, you know, it was the first technology that we came up with for long range communication. And these, the, the waves, the radio waves are very long, so they can travel through space pretty uninterrupted by whatever they encounter. And so the astronomers kind of thought, well, you know, maybe they would make this technology. And then also, even if they made something else, maybe this would be the easiest thing to detect. And I think I think that was a good start. Uh, but it really is a big assumption that that is what the aliens would like best. And so the astronomers who study this have been trying to diversify what they're looking for. There, There's a lot of interest right now in laser and infrared transmission. So like at the University of California, San Diego, they have a thing called Pano SETI, where they're looking for laser um, kind of infrared pulses coming from um, other star systems. Um, and uh, they're also getting more creative even beyond just transmissions, like looking for, thinking about looking for planetary systems where maybe you see a bunch of planets that all seem like they would be a tropical paradise. And then maybe, you know, that means that the aliens engineered them that way uh, or looking for evidence that they are harnessing a bunch of energy from their star in a thing called a Dyson sphere. And so, um, yeah, uh, Jill Tarter, who my, my book is about, actually has this saying, you know, do we know that radio waves are the best way? No, we don't. Maybe the aliens like zeta rays and then you are supposed to say what's a zeta ray and uh she says you know i don't know maybe it's something we'll discover in a hundred years or, or 200 years <laughs> and uh, you know it's just we have to do the best we can with what we have right now so that's kind of the attitude they have huh. it, it, with sound waves is, is there a problem with like the time that it would take to reach here from another star like by the time we receive it it would be like hundred years old? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, so the radio waves, they travel at the speed of light, which is very fast, but is still, you know, space is very big. So even the closest star system, it would take, I think, around four years to get here. And, you know, chances are there's nothing that close. And so anything, yeah, anything we detect would be old. We wouldn't know if the aliens were still even alive, if they were still interested in communication. And if we tried to send something back, you know, that would double the time. So no matter what happens, if we had a conversation, it would it would take probably generations of human life. Right. So yeah, it super like, slow talking. <laughs> like, like, like 10 years to communicate. How you doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty boring if it weren't with aliens. So. <laughs> um, uh, so with Jill, Jill Tarter, um, did, did you work with her right, while writing this book? Yeah, I actually uh, moved out to uh, the Bay Area in California where she lives to work on it so that we could meet uh, in person pretty regularly. So, um, yeah, I would go over to her house in Berkeley every uh, 
couple weeks and we'd do an interview for a couple hours and then I'd run off and, and write some part of it and then come back and get some more. And so, yeah, we spent a, a lot of time uh, working on it. And uh, what, what brought her into the field? Yeah, she was actually a just a traditional radio astronomer actually studying uh, things like brown dwarfs, these things that are uh, bigger than planets and smaller than stars. Um, but her advisor in graduate school um, read this report that came out that called the Cyclops Report, which was a uh, uh, a document in which scientists tried to figure out, you know, if we were going to search for aliens, what kind of a telescope would be good and how would we do it and why would we do it? And he got very excited by this and, and wanted to design his own experiment. Um, and she just happened to know how to use the, the computer and the programming language that he wanted to use and he needed some help. So he gave her this Cyclops report and told her to read it. Um, and she was just so compelled by it and interested in this idea that, that uh, are we alone wasn't just a question for philosophers or theologians, it could be a question for scientists. And so she joined his experiment and kind of just pivoted her whole career, um, mostly away from the other traditional radio astronomy stuff and toward uh -huh. search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And um like, like, how was she received by the scientific community? Did she have any pushback? You know, like, like there were people like, are you serious, really? You're going to be looking for aliens? <laughs> like, I, I know, especially, like, like now I would say like the last 10 or 15 years, it, it's definitely become, you know, a more of a scientific pursuit. But, you know, 30 years ago, it, it was a completely different uh, stigma attached to it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, I mean, at the, there was definitely some pushback, although most, most of her colleagues agreed, as long as her projects didn't take too much of the money that they wanted, that it was uh, an important thing to be doing, even if there was a low probability of success. And she is well-respected and was well-respected then within the scientific community, but where she encountered problems um, was in Washington, D.C. with the people who have the federal science money who do who did think of this as a fringe pursuit that maybe wasn't that important. And it had what what the scientists call a giggle factor, which means that when you bring up aliens, you know, people think it's silly. And so once NASA started a project and was funding Jill Tarter and her colleagues to work on it, um, the, the people in DC got wind of it and were not so happy that taxpayer dollars were being used on this and actually got the project canceled um, and uh, in the 1990s. And then after that, it was very hard to get federal funding for a, a long time to do this. And they had to, you know, they used private donors and did their own projects outside of the traditional scientific establishment. And that's, that's kind of changing now. Uh, now that we know about so many planets uh, out there and so many different kinds of life on Earth, it's a little more respected in the official circles than it used to be, but it did have a long period of being um, kind of dormant federally. 
Um, what is her point of view? Does she think it's uh, foolish for human beings to believe we are the only intelligent life in the universe? Um, actually, it's kind of surprising. She remains pretty uh, agnostic about it all. She says that she doesn't believe one way or the other that we are alone or not alone, and that the reason she's studying it is to try to figure out the answer to that question. And if she knew the answer to that question, she wouldn't be studying it. So um, I think she thinks that either hypothesis could be true, but but then also that, you know, there's a lot of real estate out there in the universe and a lot of different ways that life could arise and survive. And so I think she's uh, hopeful, but, but also would accept the idea that there might not be anything else smart out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> How about like um, lesser intelligent organisms? Yeah, I think she and most other astronomers at least think that that if, if there's life out there, there's more of it that is uh, less intelligent um, and less of it that is more intelligent um, just because it's, it's easier to form things that don't do things like build radio telescopes, non-technological societies, you know, microbes and, and other forms of simpler life existed here on earth for billions and billions of years before humans and other things we think of as intelligent arose. And in all of the history of earth, there's only ever been, you know, there, ha there hasn't been much intelligence that used technology the way that we do. Um, and there's many more species that don't. And so I think, they think that it is likely, uh -huh. more more like, yeah, that there are uh, more dumb, <laughs> dumb <laughs> organisms out there. Um, how does she um, feel about the, the theory of panspermia then? I'm not sure. I think that... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what she would say about that, but I know that other astronomers um, and astrobiologists don't think that it is unlikely that life might have arisen on a different planet within the solar system and spread to Earth, given the amount of material that flew back and forth between the planets. Um, but I, I do know that they are also very interested in the idea that life might have arisen independently on Earth and somewhere else or multiple somewhere else's in the universe. Because if you can find out that that happened uh, two separate times in our own solar system, that would mean, logically, that there's a whole lot else in other solar systems far beyond ours. Um, and so that would kind of answer that question for us. Um, what, what did she think about the, um, I can never pronounce the, uh, this, this thing's names, Omamora, the, the, that, that, um, they don't even know if it was an asteroid or what it was that, that came from like another galaxy in this really strange orbit. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the cigar shaped, uh, rock. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, uh, if I remember correctly, you know, she, she thinks it's it's likely, especially now that more evidence has come in, that you know it's just it's just a rock that came from um, outside our solar system. But she also definitely does think that that talk 
like the talk that happened around um, that, you know, wondering if it might be a spaceship or a probe coming from some other civilization, that while that is not necessarily a likely explanation, it's one worth keeping in mind until we can rule it out. And so she she's very on board with just kind of being alert to anomalies, whether it's stuff like that or, you know, weird data that you get when you're looking at uh, a supernova remnant or um, a planet and just keeping in mind the idea that that maybe you should be open to the idea that an ex one explanation could be aliens, but then also, you know, ruling out everything else before you go around, you know, crying wolf about what you found. Yeah. You know, like like to me, it would make sense to to use an existing object to travel through space. You know, something that's already doing it, colonize it, it, it and just go to the nearest planets, and then use that as a base, like a traveling base around the universe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, humans have plans to go land on asteroids and and things like that and we're not even that advanced really so i mean the trouble would be putting life support systems and stuff like that on it but you know maybe they don't need a life support system we don't know right yeah they they might not they will we don't know i mean we found life on earth that really shouldn't even be existing yeah yeah, yeah, and that's that's actually part of the reason that people like Jill Tarter are hopeful about finding aliens is that there's life in so many bad places on Earth, you know, at the heat vents at the bottom of the ocean in very radioactive, uh, you know, spent fuel pools and uh, in super salty stuff, very cold, very hot, anywhere that it can be, it basically is, which means that a lot of planets we might think of as hostile might not actually be hostile. Um, also, you know, like, like, like as humans, we're only aware of like carbon based life. Um, I, I mean, why wouldn't there be other types of, of life to eat too, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, we, um, yeah, we only have our own example and it kind of biases us in terms of what we're looking for because we assume it would be something like us, but um, we don't actually have any data to back that up and it might just be our lack of imagination telling us it has to be something like us. Um, so so uh, does Jill have any future plans of expanding this search? Well, she is technically retired right uh, now, so she's mostly kind of advising. Yeah, yeah. She she helped run the SETI Institute for a long time, and now she's on its board of trustees, kind of helping guide the direction. Um, but I know that she she is very on board with. Um, well, they have they have a telescope in Northern California called the Allen Telescope array where they look for radio broadcasts and they're you know they're trying to get more creative with the types of signals they're looking for like they're using artificial intelligence and machine learning to try to sort out signals in there that they don't anticipate so instead of saying like we're going to look for a broadcast that looks like technology on earth they tell the artificial intelligence to just find things that look 
weird. Um, so they're going in with fewer assumptions. And, and uh, I think her biggest thing actually right now is asking astronomers who, who don't do SETI work, who just, you know, study black holes or exoplanets or um, pulsars to um, keep in mind uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence when they're gathering their data so that if they see something weird in the data that they're getting from telescopes that they will say, hey, maybe the SETI people should check this out. So you just get loads and loads more data than you would otherwise. Um, so, so how does she feel about the movie contact? Does she, does she like, like the plot's kind of strange in, in a way, like, like the, the, other, the part about her and the radio waves is really cool. Um, but then they build that machine and it sort of, um, I don't know, I guess maybe it comes sort of a little bit abstract. Like some of it's really left up to the viewer's interpretation of what's actually happening. And what she's experiencing. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's true. Especially the ending, which yeah. I won't spoil, spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it. But um, yeah, she she mostly really likes contact because I think she feels like it accurately portrays what it's like to be dedicated to searching and to be dedicated to something that not everyone thinks is worthwhile um, to be doing and. I think also she has come to appreciate how much it has like in, inspired people who are who are my age or maybe a little bit older who you know might not have even known radio astronomy existed or known this was a thing that was going on but watched this movie and and got very interested and got very inspired by it and I think she she values that because a lot of people come up to her at conferences or whatever and tell her that that's that's how they came to be interested in it at all. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, how about like the in the movie, like you know, there's a whole subplot of that movie is sort of like the religion versus science. Mm -hmm. um, did she experience any of that? Was that part of her story? Um, you know, she didn't really have a, a religious upbringing uh, or anything like that. Um, and actually some of religious people in Congress were the ones who helped support uh, the work that she was doing the most. Um, there, there were some. Uh, more, there was a Mormon senator who um, actually helped 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 the project uh, keep going. And uh, I think, you know, I haven't heard about any opposition that she has experienced in that direction. And. Actually, people at the SETI Institute and elsewhere have kind of studied how different religions would react if we did discover um, alien life. And most of them would uh, turn turn out okay. It wouldn't upset the theology very much. Um, but, you know, she, she is a hard evidence person. So in terms of what was in contact about, you know, what constitutes evidence and, and what's what's important and what belief is like. She's she's not much of a believer in things. She's a show show me the evidence kind of person. Interesting. So so let's switch gears a little bit. Sure. Um, how about you personally? Um, like what do you think, like say for example, um, the government releasing the footage of the the Nemeth UFO, that Tic Tac UFO? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it is, uh, it's interesting for sure. And I actually do have a, a second book that is about um, UFO culture and, and what people find so interesting about UFOs. And I think, you know, the, the Nimbus video and the pilot testimony is definitely compelling. Um, and it's very interesting that the, you know, the government has mostly kept pretty silent on UFOs for decades and decades and said it has no interest. And then all of a sudden we're seeing all this stuff come out. But uh, what's difficult for me is that, you know, it's a, it's a short video with not, a, not any accompanying data and no official reports to go with it. And so it's very hard for us as lay people just in the public without access to that information to be able to interpret it or what's what's going on or what they might have found before or after. Um, and so mostly I would I would just like to see more, you know, before I form any conclusions. What do you think though? I'm curious. I, I think um I mean, one of the reasons I, I believe that it is extraterrestrial is because of the source, you know, um, because of Louis Alejandro and um, who's the other guy, Chris Mellon. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the, 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 I mean, it's pretty credible. And, you know, and, and they don't necessarily come out and say it's extraterrestrial, but they do say it's not ours and it's not from another country. <laughs> so then... Yeah. That only leaves one other option. <laughs> well, maybe two other options, actually. And I'd say the two options would be one is extraterrestrial, or there's another life form on this planet that we're not aware of mm. that's, you know, able to create this technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, um, I, uh, I'm going to, I withhold judgment on whether um, Luis Elizondo and Chris Mellon fully, fully know um, whether it's ours or someone else's. I, I would like to see more evidence that we know for sure that it's not ours or someone else's. Um, but uh, it's definitely, it's, it's an exciting time in UFO world with, you know, official videos and official statements. And now there's the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, um, a government investigation program into unidentified stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it's more action than we've seen in a long time. Um, how about like, like other cases that have happened, like the Phoenix Lights? And that's one of yeah. my favorites because <laughs> there was so many witnesses and some of them were even politicians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that much about the Phoenix Lights, but anything where there's a lot of people who see the same thing at the same time is definitely uh, very interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I think something that's interesting to me is that, you know, when I was working on my UFO book, if you tell people that you are uh, interested in this topic, a lot of people will tell you about experiences they've had people you wouldn't expect. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're just waiting for somebody who wouldn't, you know, make fun of what they were saying before they talked about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people about this topic, and I've learned a lot. And um, like, I was like, like, personally, I'm definitely a believer, you know, I, I, I when I, I believe that there's no way that, um, we're alone in the universe. 
And it's really hard to come up with any explanation for the reports of UFOs, not just in, in recent history, but, you know, but throughout the existence of the human race and our ability to, to document it. Yeah, I mean, I am, I come from more of the skeptical side, but I like to think of myself as open-minded. You're right, this is a, you know, people have been seeing strange things for a very long time. Very credible people have been seeing strange things for a very long time. And um, once I started looking into it, even though I'm a skeptic, I was still interested and couldn't stop. And even now that I'm done researching the book, I'm still kind of down the wormhole. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think if it is, if that is what is going on, it would be probably, you know, the biggest discovery in human history. And I think that's what I find compelling about it, even though um, I'm not on the believer side. Uh, if, if I, if it turns out I should have been on the believer side, then that is huge, huge news. Um, something exciting to me personally, I think. And to all of all of the humans on earth um how about like uh you know the ancient alien theories about like all the the monolithic structures the polygonal construction um things like the paracas skulls stuff like that i mean there, there's no explanation for for a lot of that it seems like there's a gap in our history of what we know yeah, I am not overly familiar with the ancient with the details of the ancient aliens stuff, but I I and I mean I do think there are probably lots of gaps in our history of what we know about what has gone on on Earth. Um, but I do think that probably humans have always been a little more capable than we gave them credit for. But I uh, yeah I ha I haven't seen or read enough about lots of the ancient alien stuff to, to be able to speak to many of the details. Um, so what do you think UFOs are if you're a skeptic? Like how do you, what would your explanation be for all the unexplained phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, I think technically my skeptical position is that I don't know. And so I uh, wait to form a conclusion until I have enough evidence to justify a conclusion. But I mean, some of the, some of the, I mean, I think a lot, historically, a lot of the UFO sightings have been explainable by just very strange looking normal things. And so I think that's always going to be true that most UFO sightings are misinterpretations of normal stuff like weird atmospheric phenomena or classified military projects or just even normal things like planes seen at, at weird angles. But then there always has been this percentage of, of things that, that can't be explained away exactly that way. And um, for those, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So How about um, alien abduction? Mm hmm. Yeah, that's that's a hard one. Um, and, you know, I am also a skeptic of of alien abduction. And it's interesting. Uh, a lot of people point to the fact that lots of abduction stories are similar as evidence that they are true. Um, and 
to me, I wonder more if it's just, you know, that's that's the way our brain works, that's the way our brain uh, interprets something that's going on, or, you know, people hear about other people's abduction stories and then start to interpret them the same way. But, uh, you know, there have been some academic studies into it. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, John Mack, who held a conference at Harvard about alien abduction back in the 80s or 90s. Have you heard of him? No, I haven't. Yeah, he was a uh, a psychologist who got very interested in this. He, you know, he he didn't have an opinion that it was aliens, but he saw that there were lots of people kind of saying that they were experiencing these same things, and he wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so it was this conference at Harvard to try to get to the bottom of it. And um, you know, we still aren't to the bottom of it, but. Yeah, I think I think in general the world is just the world and the universe are are stranger than most of us give it give them credit for. Um, like I do believe that some alien abductions could be sleep paralysis because apparently a lot of people experience that and, and mm -hmm. see similar things during have while well, having that experience. Um, do, do you, another explanation, and, and I'll put this one by you. Um, what if it's the government is trying to trick people to make them believe that they're aliens just as a, a way to experiment on, to do human experimentation? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a theory. I think it would be um, very hard to have gotten away with it for so long. Anytime there's a, a conspiracy that would have to involve so many people, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to keep a secret when you have so many people involved in something like that. Would have to have so many people that I would have a hard time um, believing that they could keep it under wraps. And I would also wonder, you know, what would the motivation be? What what experimentation would they be doing that they couldn't do with with willing? subjects and mm -hmm. so yeah do you have ideas about that well one of the things is i i used to have the same opinion about you is like like you know there's no way they could keep it a secret um but not too long ago i interviewed somebody who was a participant in project stargate you know the mind control stuff and, and mm -hmm. using telepathy and remote viewing and um after speaking with him, I am now convinced that they would be able to keep something that large a secret, no problem. Mm -hmm. What um, about the what about the question of what they would gain from it? Like, what would be the purpose of the experiments? I think they would want to one definitely a super soldier. I, I mean, I think they would definitely want to create something. You know. Uh, to find ways of making biological human weapons. And I think the other possibility um, is actually human cloning. Mm -hmm. Te technically illegal. Technically illegal, but they have done it in China. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure if they've done it in China, somebody here is also doing it. You know, it might not be the government. It could be maybe a corporation or some kind of for, for medical purposes. But I would have to say that 
you know, if, if most of our food is already being cloned, they have to be cloning people somewhere. The, uh, there, there is some work going on at places like DARPA, um, the, the research and development kind of arm of the Defense Department in human augmentation of various sorts, um, you know, uh, different kind of mi mind controlled uh, prosthetics and ways of understanding and manipulating the brain um, and and things like that that have that do have uh, defensive purposes, but could also have offensive purposes. So it's not something they're not interested in. Right. So, mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons why I do think like some of it could be. I, I think that's one of uh, one one plausible explanation, and, and then the other one is it, it's just aliens doing their thing, you know. Um, I, I had interviewed somebody who was an abductee, and she said that they were using her, uh, they were basically harvesting fetuses from her, impregnating her and taking the fetuses. And for, for the reason that these extraterrestrials uh, were once human from a long, long time ago, they left the planet because of some kind of war, and they spent so much time out in space, you know, that they evolved into the greys. And as a result, though, one of the, some of the side effects of being out in space and for so long as they've lost ability to reproduce, and they've also lost some of their ability to, to feel emotions. Um, so they're using human fetuses and, and human DNA to try to um, re-genetically modify themselves to be more back to what they originally were before they had to leave the planet. Those are pretty big claims. But it makes sense. And the re reason I think it makes sense is because there's a lot of evidence that there were advanced civilizations on Earth prior to what we know about. Uh, you mean the, the like, uh, like ar architecturally? Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, and, and even like far as like um, finding skulls, and, and you know, like just like the, like the, it wasn't that long ago they discovered like the those little hobbit people, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult because you know, thing I, stories like that are very interesting, and it's very difficult to prove them true or prove them false. And so, from from the skeptic perspective uh you know i would just have to say that it's yeah uh the the stories are interesting but for for me to believe that it's true it requires more evidence than we have but keep an open mind and and, and definitely people's experiences are whether they're ufos or abductions and however they interpret them can be you know very meaningful and, and change people's lives and their whole perspectives on on the universe and life on earth and that's not something to dismiss at all um how do you what is your perspective on the possibility of there being multi-dimensional beings yeah i um I haven't done a ton of research on that idea but i think i would say the same thing kind of is uh, that I would need to see some 
evidence of because I'm I'm not even exactly sure what uh, a multi-dimensional be like what that would mean or how that would manifest or how we would understand it and so I would want to understand those things mm -hmm. first yeah have you dived into uh, quantum physics at all? Mm, I took uh, quantum two semesters of quantum physics in college, but it's it's been a while. But um, I was at least pretty familiar with it then. And do you think there's uh, like like do you think quantum physics offers some explanation to some of the unexplained phenomena that that people experience? I mean, I think that there is so much in, you know, in quantum physics and also in in the fact that we haven't unified quantum physics with the other kind of physics that seems to rule the larger world that just tells us that there are things about the universe that we just don't understand yet at all. Like we don't have a unified theory of how it works. And until we do, that means that we, you know, can't really understand everything that is going on and so I think yeah I think we're probably wrong about a lot of things and I think there's probably a lot that we have left to discover and a lot of things that maybe seem inexplicable and mysterious to us now are just manifestations of sorts of physics that we haven't fully explored yet. How far along do you think we are in understanding? Do you think we know like, like percentage wise, like say, say knowing everything there is in the universe is a hundred percent, and knowing nothing is is zero percent. Where would you put humans at right now? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I think I would say five to ten percent, maybe. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> I think we got a ways to go. What would you say? Uh, I would say probably about 50. Okay. Um, but, but, but out of that 50, you know, I'm basing a lot of that on more intuitive knowledge rather than scientific knowledge. Because mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I really find fascinating is how much intuitive knowledge um, people in the past have had that has now been proven to be scientifically true, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and I just like, like, you know, just, just certain things like that, you know, ancient Egyptians and yogis and, and shamans and, and herbalists, like they knew stuff that they really should not have been able to know. Mm -hmm at a time when the, the, that knowledge wasn't available. And it's, I find that that's really difficult to explain. So I can't completely eliminate intuitive knowledge. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. And um, yeah, those, those groups of people who had that knowledge long before we ever had it scientifically and turned out to be right, like technically they'd been doing kind of intuitive experiments for generations and generations to to figure it out and so yeah i mean maybe we currently have an intuitive grasp of things that 100 years from now we'll have a scientific grasp of too oh absolutely it seems like that that always happens mm -hmm. even in our own lifetime you know we, we mm -hmm. like you know i think like, like when i was a kid like you know we didn't have cell phones or computers <laughs> you know mm -hmm. I, mean, I think i may have had a commodore 64 or something like that <laughs> um 
so a lot like a lot of like like, this, like a cell phone you know like, like you know that was like something on star trek yeah 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 i'm excited to see what we have in uh 2050 what cool cool terrifying stuff <laughs> <laughs> um so with the quantum theory um maybe since you've had a couple semesters of it how is it that a particle can be a wave and a wave can be a particle at the same time yeah i mean i think that's it the, bothers uh, me. it bothers me too i mean i think the problem with things like that in quantum mechanics is that our brains just aren't wired to understand what that means like it seems impossible because how can something be two different things at once how is that possible and i think it's just kind of a limit of how our brains work because our brains evolved and formed in a world that where that's not true like this desk next to me is not a wave and a particle it's just a bunch of particles put together and it it feels solid and that is what our our brains have been right. wired to understand and so i think there's there's some quote that i'm that i don't remember who it was or exactly how it went but you know anyone who says they understand quantum mechanics is lying um and so you know this stuff that makes sense mathematically like stuff being a wave and a particle um it's just hard for it to to ring true to our macroscopic minds so if, if the desk in front of you is a bunch of particles and we don't know what the part some of these particles are particles some of them are waves we don't know what they are um and we also know that they don't really have much mass like mm -hmm. most of it's empty space Mm -hmm. why is that desk there <laughs> like why is it we feel it why is it why is the computer sitting on it it doesn't make sense does it uh no you know maybe it's all a simulation <laughs> maybe that's what's going on do you do you kind of put any credence in the idea of the uh, a holographic universe theory I, I feel about that the same way I feel about the the rest of the stuff, which is that I am uh, I am holding holding back on judgment about it because I don't have enough evidence. But I definitely find I find the idea of things being a simulation very interesting uh, philosophically, and I think a lot about you know if we found out that it was, would it matter to me? Would it make it seem less real, more fake, or would it feel the same because um you know because it feels the same and so i like to think about it but i don't i don't believe that it is true but i don't believe it's not true uh but i i do like to contemplate it do you think that there's any interaction between consciousness and matter um i do not i, I uh no i haven't ever seen any evidence myself that that is the case um but if I did, I would be, you know, willing, willing to believe it if I saw enough evidence. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think one consists without the other. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's definitely some kind of play because um, I don't know. That's just the only way I can comprehend it in my head. Yeah. Is I that mean, they work together. Yeah, I mean, consciousness is kind of almost as mysterious to us as quantum mechanics is. 
um, you know, we don't really under science scientists don't fully have a grasp on what consciousness is or why it is or things like that. And so I, th I think that's one of the big mysteries out there. Indeed, it definitely is. Um, I have to say, like interviewing you, um, I, I mean, you, um, or you are the least judgmental person I've ever interviewed. <laughs> like, like, I, I, like, 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 you're always like, you know, you're, it's like you're on this shelf with so many things waiting for science to prove something. Mm -hmm. Um, is there anything that you believe that science has not proven? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't think so. I think because, so my, my worldview is very formed by, I actually did grow up very religious um, uh, and I'm not anymore, but you know, back then I was very certain about lots of things and believed lots of things. And once I stopped feeling that way, I think I just became very comfortable with not knowing things and and uh, being uncertain and holding two possibilities in my mind. Like maybe there are aliens, maybe there are not. Maybe consciousness interacts with matter, maybe it, maybe it doesn't and feeling okay, um, not actually having uh, a firm opinion either way and waiting for things to kind of shake out. So how about like personally, like seeking the answers to these questions out yourself? Have you tried anything? Like, have you, you know, tried looking for UFOs on your own or exploring your own consciousness or trying things like maybe like DMT or ayahuasca or, or, or meditation or, you know, stuff like that. Um, I should, I should do more of that. Um, I've done, I've looked for UFOs quite a lot. Uh, when I was working on my book, about UFOs, I was just kind of always on the lookout for things in the sky that I um, couldn't understand. And I, yeah, I mean, I did see strange things, nothing that seemed to me to, to you know, scream at me that it was aliens. But I think, you know, I think there's a lot out there that, um, you know, I saw things that I didn't uh, know what they were. And um, I, uh, I should probably explore my own consciousness more than I have. It'll just leave you with more questions and answers. I can <laughs> guarantee <true>. you that. <laughs> that's true, but I like the questions, so maybe that's <laughs> fine. Maybe that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've never, myself, I've never seen a UFO. Um, but I, I do like hanging out in the backyard and I look up at the sky. And, and just that alone makes me wonder a whole lot, how, how all this came about, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it seems strange to me that it's random. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of, uh, order out there for it to be random. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, I think there's one of the biggest questions to me anyway, is, you know, how, how did the universe itself get started? Like we know Big Bang, but okay, what was before the Big Bang? And uh, 
all those things. And I, I agree that looking up uh, at the sky is a very good thing to do. And I try to look up there and think, actually think about like, you know, like that's a star. It's uh, hundreds of light years away. The universe is very much bigger than that. And just kind of try to think about everything in a, a cosmic context, which is, you know, hard when you're going about your day-to-day -day life. Makes you feel small and insignificant sometimes. But I think it also, for me, makes me, reminds me that I'm a part of it too. Mm -hmm. I'm a part of this big thing. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a, a small feeling and a big feeling at the same time. <laughs> no, yeah, I feel, I feel the exact same way. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a good thing to do. And I think we all probably don't do quite enough of it. Um, I had another question. I just forgot it, of course. <laughs> uh, so, so, geez, I really went blank. Oh, oh, I know what it was. Um, being such a skeptic, uh, what is your view on cryptozoology and things like Bigfoot? Yeah, I mean, I think probably, uh, Bigfoot is not real, but I think kind of like if if people who are interested in UFOs look at the night sky more often than than they otherwise would, then like trying to find Bigfoot is really, you know, going out in the woods and having adventures, which I also like to do and I think is a good thing. Um, and I think also, you know, we do we do discover species of things that we didn't know existed fairly regularly. Um, I don't remember the numbers, but there, there are estimates that there are, you know, many species of things that we haven't discovered yet. And it's, it's hard uh, to believe that lots of them would be big, like Bigfoot or, you know, a Loch Ness monster or things like that. But I don't, I don't think there's any harm in trying to figure that out um, and go on those kinds of adventures. Um, how, how about imagination? Do you think imagination is a real thing? Or is it just stuff that we make up in our heads? What do you mean exactly? Um, like one of the reasons I named my podcast Everything Imaginable is because everything that, that humans have figured out and everything that we've created, first we imagined it first and then made it into reality or investigated to find out if it's, if it's true. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that imagination or, or what we think in our thoughts is almost operates like a separate reality? Or do you think it's just electrical impulses in the, in a human brain? Hmm. Yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, I think the brain is a very powerful thing that we understand maybe even less than we understand the universe and, and quantum mechanics and, and things like that. And the way that it works underneath the surface is something that we, you know, can't replicate and don't have a full handle on um, and is, is more complex even than we probably give ourselves credit for it. And so I think, uh, I think imagination is part of that. And I mean, I do, I do think that the brain runs on electrical impulses and 
chemical exchanges and and things like that, but that the sum of that is uh, uh, the sum of those parts is more than those parts seem like on their own. I don't know if I understood that. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I understood it either. So we're so we're even. <laughs> I think I think the short version of it is I don't know. <laughs> um. So uh, I, I think you have the one book is out. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the about Jill and is the other one out now too. Yeah, it is. It's called They Are Already Here, uh, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. Mm -hmm. Why did you call it They're Already Here? Oh, sorry, you cut out for a second. Can you repeat oh, that? Why, why did you call it They're Already Here? Oh, um, I called it that because that is when I was working on the other book about Jill Tarter and searching for these radio broadcasts from extraterrestrial civilizations that they are already here is what lots of people um, in the UFO community would say to me. Like, why, why would you do SETI? Why are you looking for radio broadcasts from far away? They are already here. And so that is just kind of phrasing that I stole from the, the <laughs> UFO community. <laughs> uh, do you belong to any UFO groups like MUFON or anything? Uh, I, bef before the pandemic and when I was working on the book, I would go to a lot of the um, local MUFON meetings in Denver, where I live. Um, I was a member for a year. I think I let my membership lapse, but I was a member. Um, and I, uh, I hang out on some of the, the UFO groups online, um, like the, the UFO groups on on Reddit or um, on Facebook. I kind of lurk in there and don't say very much, but read what other people are saying. Um, what is your opinion of, of people that are hardcore believers? I, you know, I don't count myself among them, but I think, I mean, hardcore UFO belief is a lot like a, religious belief, I think, in that, um, you know, it doesn't require evidence in the same in the same way that, you know, if you're talking about it as a scientific topic, it would. It's just more about belief and faith and, you know, knowing that you have this conclusion and, and things aren't going to change your mind about it. But I think that that is fine. Like UFOs are a fine thing to believe in as long as you're like, nice to other people who maybe don't think the same way about it uh -huh. and aren't and aren't trying to uh uh swindle people out of anything like i think there are some ufo people who take who take advantage of believers um in terms of money or products or, or things like that but i think as long as uh everybody's being uh nice to each other it's it's uh being a believer is is fine what made you stop believing in your religion? Hmm. Well, I was, uh, my family was very Mormon when I was growing up. And uh, that, that religion is kind of very top down. Like there's a, a rough a, one. Yeah, is. there's a, you know, there's a prophet who's alive and everything that he says um, 
you have to believe is true or um, you kind of don't believe in the rest of it because then you don't believe he's the prophet. And, uh, you know, I just started to diverge from what the Mormon church thought on some stuff politically. And I was like, well, if I don't believe what he's saying about that, then I guess I can't believe any of the rest of it. So it was mostly just um, believing in my own opinions more, more than what a guy in Utah had to say to me. Makes sense. Is there a lot of abuse in the Mormon community? I don't know the uh, extent of any of that. I do know that there have been some cases of, of people abusing their power, but I don't have a sense of the extent of it. It's it's scary though, right? That, that people are forced or, or, or that, that people are willing to believe what somebody else tells them to believe. Yeah, it is. Isn't and that I, kind of frightening? It is. It is. And especially in in religions like Mormonism, where you're told not to, you know, seek out any, inf if you find any information that contradicts what somebody else tells you, it's bad and evil and you need to get away from it, I think is a dangerous attitude because everybody should, everybody should think for themselves, I think. And if, if they think for themselves and want to believe Mormonism, then that's fine. But uh, they should have the opportunity to, to make up their own lives. Right. Yeah. That's why I'm I'm a real big fan of just experimenting and finding your own truth and mm -hmm. you know decide what reality is by 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 experiencing it rather than what somebody else is going to tell me what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I approve of that. <laughs> that's, that's how I try to go about my life too. <laughs> Yeah, that, that explains a lot, though, kind of like about you and why you, you're so scientifically focused and looking for proof and not wanting to believe what people tell you, but rather believing in the science and the numbers and, and a solid object to prove something rather than, than someone else's word or even another person's story, even if it's come from multiple people. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, the 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 philosophies that I operate in now are very very predictable, given my upbringing and experiences. So, um, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, I I I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, but I totally... uh, yeah, but but I mean, I don't. I think that uh, every most humans have a need to believe in something. And I think that even, you know, science can be that for, for some people like science sometimes operates as much like a religion as religion does or like a belief system. And so everybody just turns, turns to, including me, you know, turns to their own uh, set of, set of beliefs and what they think is important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I believe personally, um, as long as nobody's being hurt or manipulated, I'm okay with it. Yeah, totally. But, uh, I agree. But, but, but it does bother me to see, um, I don't know, people taking other people's money for nothing in return. Yeah. That, that, that just drives me nuts. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you do see kind of a lot of that in, in the UFO world, um, people taking advantage of other people's beliefs. And so, but aside, aside from that, yeah, I agree that we should all let each other believe whatever we want to believe. Cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so did I miss anything? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Thanks. We solved uh, the, we solved the whole universe. So. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody's gonna. Anybody who says they've solved the whole universe is lying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, thank you for having me. It's been a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And um, what I'll do? Uh, where, where can my listeners find you and find your book? Yeah, I um I have a website. It is uh dot -E com. Um and I put articles that I write there and uh you the book both books also have uh web pages there or you can find links to um buying them on Amazon or Barnes and Noble at your or at your local bookstore. Great. Uh, what I'll do too is I'll, I'll post the links to your site and I'll also post the link to the Amazon page okay. and then those to this episode so my listeners can find you and check out your stuff. That sounds great. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to be on and have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.